0: Hey, this is Boke Nagbar, and this is the Details Podcast, episode number five. Um, we, um, we took some time off, should I say, the, the, the previous month. Uh, not for our Slovenian versions of our podcast, but the English one, uh, we took time off in, in December. Um, and here we are again, uh, my co-host, Ange Tomic. What's up? What's up? We're, <laughs> We're back. On. We're back in English. <laughs> We're, back. Ah. We're back in English. Um, so for today, um, or should I say, for our previous podcast, the ones who have been listened, uh, we talked to Daniele Bulili, which is uh, an Italian-born writer, um, university professor, and podcaster. Uh, it, was a, it was a really cool um, podcast, uh, mostly about uh, his career and about um, the religion, uh, which he is uh, deeply involved with through the books that he's writing and explaining religion in a very interesting ways. Um, but also, we talked about Conan the Barbarian and Bruce Lee. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's worth. We're checking it out. Um, today we're going to talk to Angelo Vermeulen. Uh, Angelo is uh, Bel- from Belgium. He's a visual artist, but his work crosses over to boundaries of biology, technology, and community. Uh, he was a crew commander of uh, uh, high seas Mars simulation study, uh, which was working on improving the nutritional value of space food. Uh, this whole mission was funded by NASA. I'm sure he's going to have a lot of interesting stuff to say about that. Uh, he travels the world a lot and, and shares his uh, knowledge and information um, about his art and about a scientific project that he does. Um, he's won a bunch of awards for the work he's done. Uh, his projects have won a lot of awards and um, uh, I've been following him on Twitter and, and through the things he's done over the last couple of years and he seems like a very interesting person. Um, uh, maybe the first guy that I can actually talk that has some idea of, of traveling to Mars which to me has always been uh, and a very interesting topic, uh, Andre, I don't know about you, but you know, going to Mars is something that uh, excites me. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see how close we can get to that, actually, in our lifetime.
1: Just right when you get there. So.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> sure will. Um, anyways, where where can where can people hear hear our podcast, Andrzej, and uh, and how can people um, um, follow us on our web page and so on? Yeah,
1: the site is the detailspodcast.com and of course we're also in iTunes so if you can leave us a review there that'd be great because then maybe some other people can find the show and that's uh, pretty much it
0: yeah that that's about it um i think uh, i think you're ready angelo is ready uh so uh, ange let's start this thing Okay, uh, we got Angelo Vermulen on the line. Uh, Angelo, how you doing? I'm pretty good. I'm at home for a change. That's good. <laughs> it's always it's always good to be home. Now, no, where, where is home for you?
2: Home is in the city of Sint-Niklaas in Belgium, close to Antwerp, which is a more well known city. Uh
0: huh. Um, as always we always we we give uh our guests uh an opportunity at the beginning to to maybe introduce themselves to the people who who maybe do not know them um obviously you you've done a lot of different things you're involved in a lot of different things but uh as an introduction maybe you can you can you can tell us how you got started um uh, you know is an early age with your um interest in all the areas that you're involved with biology technology community and so on and so on um, and, and got to this point where you are now?
2: Oh, yes. Um, I think one of the labels that I often get is that I'm um, mixing art and science. And uh, I'm also talking about it myself, of course. It's not just a label that people put on me artificially. I also talk about art and science. But um, the thing is that, as a consequence, people think that I've, um, because I started out studying science and then I became an artist, that I kind of evolved I evolved from being a scientist into becoming an artist. But that's not really true. Um, actually, all those interests were always there. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, I was very interested in science. I had my own small laboratory. I even wrote on my own science magazine that I sold at school. <laughs> awesome. um, but at the same time, I was very interested in the arts. I, I, I was uh, making photos. I started developing my own photos in a very simple dark room. I was very much into literature. And so all these things were always there. But in the end, when I had to go into university, I decided to go for biology. And I I did a PhD in biology. I became very specialized in biology. Um, But when I was doing my PhD, I decided to also study photography because I could feel that choosing for either science or either art was not going to be enough for me. So in the day, I was working in the lab for my PhD, and in the evening, I was in the art school studying photography. And by the end of it all, I was both a a professional biologist and a photographer. And that's where basically my current life started. I started uh, creating art, focusing more and more on art, but basically always keeping that scientific background uh, with me. And very quickly, I started using biology in my art. I started using, uh, I started creating living, uh, living artworks, artworks containing living organisms, artworks containing evolutionary processes, containing ecological processes, etc. cetera, et cetera. Um, And that basically led to, to where I am now. And uh, that's kind of uh, the short story of uh, how it all happens.
0: If anybody puts your name in Google and Googles it and, and looks through the, through the, Really different areas and different projects you're involved with. There, there's a couple that I would like to uh, uh, point out or, or, or talk about. Um, and one of them is the project Biomod, which which Angé, uh, my co-host, <laughs> we talked about it earlier. He's like, I can't quite understand what, what, what this is a, what this is about. And 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 you know, we we read about it. I mean, I read about it. He read about it. But, but still, I said I said let's give Angel a chance to exactly explain us um especially for me was was really interesting to read how um you're you're trying to uh i don't know how to say to put together computers and and uh, and and plants or you know like like it's kind of like biology and technology you know inter- intertwined can can you explain more about the the biomod project yeah sure i i actually built
2: um i built a version in maribor uh, several years ago so it it has been uh been, it has been built in Slovenia. Oh, awesome. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, Biomod is um, is an installation art project, but it's also a community art project. It's actually a project with many different layers. Uh, many of my projects um, are like that. Um, th- you can't really put them in one single box. And Biomod is, to summarize, turning... We turn e waste, electronic waste, computers that people throw out. Um, we recover it. We check the components. We rebuild a computer network out of those components that actually works again. And then we build a living ecosystem inside the computer network that uses the waste heat of the electronics um, to grow and develop. So you have all these plant species growing together with. Motherboards and graphic cards and hard drives and all, everything is just living and working together. And in a subsequent stage of the project, we started connecting the biology and the technology even more uh, intricately. And what we started doing was, um, we were using those networks to play computer <laughs> games. So that was, that was the original idea. Let's, let's bring together the social, the ecological, and the technological. And that was that was the, the starting point of Biomod. So the thing was, we built these crazy gaming networks, uh, and then people would come over and would use the network to game with each other. The electronics would heat up, and that would boost the growth of the ecosystem. But during the development of the project, we mo- like I said, we wanted to make things a little more intricate. And um, we actually started feeding the game with data from the ecosystem. So it's basically that the game was being manipulated and generated partly by the dynamics of the ecosystem, by the growth of the plants, by the temperature of the ecosystem, by the humidity of the ecosystem. All of those data were being fed into the game. And at the same time, the game was connected to robotics and could, in this way, start taking care of the plants. So there was this very interesting back and forth in many different ways between um, living organisms and a, a computer network. T- taking care of the plants, how? Well, we basically, we made very simple robotics. I mean, robotics is a big word, but what we did was, for example, we, um, we hacked a ultrasonic humidifier. It's a, it's a device that you can buy and you can put it in your house and it sprays us fine mist every now and then just to keep moist, your air moist. And uh, we hacked it and then Connected it to the artificial intelligence of the game, so the game could actually decide when to humidify which plants <laughs> okay. where, um, and then all kinds of other devices were being invented uh, that, that could take care of plants. It was mostly had to do with, with providing um, uh, water and moisture and turning on of, or on or off lights, stuff like that. So very simple things, but you know the poetics is very strong. It's it's you got a a, a deep intertwining of living organisms and and, and technology. But there's one thing that keeps coming back in biomod that I didn't talk about, and that's the water cooling system. Very often in biomod we're using water cooling. Water cooling is a typical trick. A lot of um, people that built their own computers are using this. It's a very efficient way to cool your computer, much more efficient than using a fan. But instead of using commercial coolant liquid to run through our computer we were using a culture of living microscopic algae we were running living microscopic cells through the computer that were physically cooling down the processors to run the system and this is technically symbiosis it's a, it's beneficial for both parties the the computer can operate because the algae culture is cooling is is cooling it and the algae culture is growing better because it picks up the heat of the computer, and that's a very, you know, a very strong and, and once again a very poetic um, a way to, to combine things that for many people are basically enemies, the computers and, and plant life. Most people just completely don't associate them or even think it's possible to put them together in a new configuration. I think that's the major mes- message of the project. It makes it makes thing it makes people think differently about the relationship between nature and technology. Yeah, I was
1: about to ask that because how do you like? Ha- that's was yeah. That was actually my question. How do you have plants and electronics in the same sort of confined space? Like you had to like. I mean, there must be some separation, right? You can't just expose like. No, no,
2: no, no, no. They're all no, no, no separation. The leaves were touching the hard drives, and the, the plants were crawling around the motherboards, and it was just <laughs> all happily together. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah, I, I'm looking. I'm looking at some of the photos on the, the biomod.net dot webpage yes. and. and it, it looks amazing. It looks, I mean, it really looks something from like a futuristic movie or something. It's, it's almost uh, hard to believe that, that those things, like you said, plants and, and computers, that they work hand in hand. It's it's something that you definitely haven't seen before. Yeah. I,
2: I'm, actually, I'm actually setting up, um, I'm organizing a biomod workshop in uh, Kosovo. And uh, in a few months, uh, I'll be over in Kristina and we'll build a, a new one. there.
1: Okay. okay. But it must have gone wrong at some point, right? With all of it?
2: <laughs> um, no, not really. At this point, I mean, knock on wood. Okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, up to this point, well, the thing is, you know, the most biomods operated pretty well. Uh, the last one that we built, the last major one that we built, because I'm also doing these, these biomod workshops, like the one that's coming up in Kosovo, um, the, ma- the last bigger one that I worked on took 14 months to develop and that was in New York City in the New York Hall of Science it was part of an art exhibit. And uh, there we prototyped this concept that I just explained. Um, I'm calling it entangled reality. It's like the game worlds and the natural world are completely entangled because the game world has impact on the biological world and the biological world has impact on the game world. So that's why I'm using that concept. And we, we, we basically made a prototype of this concept, but it was part of a, of an exhibit in a science museum and science museums have this constant flow of, of school kids visiting. And that's where you can see that the a prototype like this is not strong enough to withstand hundreds of school children, just, you know, pushing everything. <laughs> so we had to shut down a few of the systems. That was the only occasion where we were like, okay, we have to shut down a few things here, but um, on all other occasions, it, it, it works, it works well. It's, uh, it's not that difficult. There is a, you know, as much as it is an artwork that, uh, turns people's perceptions upside down and um, there's also a lot of advocacy involved it's about e-waste and i'm actually teaching people how to turn things that are thrown out into useful objects again and that's part of the you know of the, of the, the yeah like i said the advocacy of the project
1: Okay, but what what exactly was the game like what what were people playing
2: we, um, we've been playing all sorts of games. We've been playing open source games. We're always installing, um, Linux uh-huh. on the, on the, on the computers. We're using open source software, mostly Ubuntu. Um, and then we've been using open source games, very simple multiplayer open source games. Um, one of them, one of the first games we used was, for example, uh, Tron, <laughs> one of the, one of the Tron, one of the Tron <laughs> games, uh, because it's quite nice how in Tron, you also get this interesting, um, mixing of, 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 of a, a human who's, who's being uh, almost absorbed. Uh, digitized
1: by, computer by a, computer
2: a computer. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's like living inside a computer system. So we kind of like that metaphor. Uh, but then later on, like in the Philippines, we, um, we, we made our own game and was basically a, a bit of a translation of local mythology, local ecological mythology was translated into a um, retro styled game. Also, multiplayer. And then, for the last major version of the project in New York City, um, we made a very elaborate game that included uh, the sensor input and the robotics that I just talked about.
1: And it's all, okay, if it all, like, okay, if the hardware has to run Ubuntu. Right, but like most of the pictures I saw, you have like CRT monitors, since it's like old tech. Like how, like what? uh, This is me. This is I'm a tech writer, so I'm sorry, but (laughs) I I need to ask this stuff. Like, like the computing power. Like, what are we talking about here? Well,
2: I've always, I've, I've always been looking in the beginning. I was always looking for Pentium Force. Okay. Um, and you can you could run in 2007, you could easily run an Ubuntu. Version on a Pentium Four.
1: Oh, okay. Um, and then what? Like a, gig- a gigabyte of RAM, basically, or maybe two, right? Yeah,
2: something. Yeah, about about that. Yeah, and then now I've I've just read that um, Ubuntu has released a few lighter versions now. Yeah. Like uh, I think it was Ubuntu Core, and now there is Snappy Ubuntu Core. There is even a lighter version. Yeah. Uh, so you know, that, there's always a way out with these lighter lighter versions. Uh, the CRT mon- CRT monitors. It really depends on what what kind of trash we find. I mean, if it's a, <laughs> yeah, if it's a CRT <laughs> monitor for the, from the nineties, but it still has a, a proper VGA cable uh, coming out of it, or, you know, we can still use it. it. It looks a little dated, but hey, that's retro style. Why not?
1: Yeah, no, I I like the that advocacy part where it's like uh, the salvaging of old tech because that's that's becoming a like a bigger and bigger problem. <laughs> Cause, yes. Yeah, absolutely. it's getting yeah. to be ridiculous, basically. So yeah, that that part I really enjoyed when I read through the site. So, I you know, but like it, it's like yeah, I just love that like Linux gets used um, in these sorts of ways. I think that was the point, probably. Like I I, I cannot imagine a better use of Linux uh, than yeah. <laughs> like Biomart. Like I don't know, just, it's it makes sense on a couple of levels. So yeah.
2: Oh totally. Yeah, yeah, and it's good for the people joining the project because most of them. Have never used or let alone installed uh, a Linux distribution, so no. it's, um, it's 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 part of the you know part of the experience of joining a project like this. Something like the
1: Raspberry Pi looks perfect for this.
2: Yes and no. Oh, why? We've we've been discussing this because um, because um, Biomod is so much focused on e-waste.
1: All right. Yeah. I re-
2: I don't really consider the Raspberry Pi as as e-waste or as an e-waste issue. Okay. Or as giving empowerment of uh giving empowerment to people to the machines they have in their house because everybody has at least one computer somewhere uh tucked away and I, I their relationship is very different.
1: That is true, yeah. So okay, fair
2: enough. I mean we've been we've been using Raspberry Pi in, in, in my other project, uh, my other community project uh, seeker. Uh and that was in uh, in Ljubljana. We used the whole network of Raspberry Pis there, but um yeah, it depends from project to project.
0: Well, you um you just mentioned the 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 Project Seeker um which is uh is the way I understand it is a is a spaceship model which experiments with the integration of technolo- technological ecological and social systems. Um you know, all in 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 the reason try to try to enable long-term long-term survival in a spaceship. Um you said that you also came um, to Slovenia to to do this project the seeker project mm-hmm.
2: exactly we built one in uh, moderna Galleria in, uh, in, in Ljubljana just uh, yeah just a few years ago really cool relatively recent Um And um, it's actually not really a spaceship, it's a starship. (laughs) um, There is a difference, there is a difference, there is a
0: difference. Tell tell, tell the difference to those of us who don't know the difference. We're talking about
2: interstellar travel, we're not talking about interplanetary travel. So a spaceship is more something you would use to explore the solar system, and a starship is something you would use to go to a different star. Uh, There's actually academic research in this field, and currently... I'm doing a PhD on Starship design at uh, Deloft University of Technology. So that's the topic of my current PhD is um, designing or coming up with new concepts, how we could build uh, a spacecraft or a spacecraft architecture that could keep functioning over multiple decades, over a very long time uh, and over very long distances. And... Part of my PhD is actually this community art project, Seeker. And this is a grassroots project. So for my current research, I'm doing both engineering research uh, through computer modeling and to collaborating with people at universities, but I'm also using a grassroots approach. I'm basically inviting people to come up with a prototype how a starship, according to that particular community that I start working with, how it could look like. And this is very interesting because when you leave that professional um, contexts, um, you get all kinds of different different approaches. So, for example, right now, um, there is a, there are two seekers in development. One is in Kosovo as well, and the other one in the Atacama Desert in Chile. And um, the interests there and the, the preoccupations of people when we're talking about surviving into the future are very different, uh, a desert in Latin America or the political situation in Kosovo, it's a complete different world. And so that concept, context becomes part of the story of how people envision their future. And I'm actually guiding them and I'm using the, the, the metaphor of the starship to, um, it's a miniature world. You have to reinvent everything. Because a starship needs to contain everything. It's not like you take a little bit of fuel and then after some months you come back home. No, that's it. That's your world. Everything needs to be there. Everything needs to be recycled. And so these prototypes are actually systems. We built water purification systems inside, food production systems. Um, And then once we built them... As a sculpture, as a system, it's kind of a hybrid thing. We run our own isolation missions inside the spaceship. We run our own space simulation missions inside the starship. And that's what we did in uh, in Ljubljana as well. We locked ourselves up for multiple days inside our artwork, inside the museum, and we did not come out. In the evening, the guard would just turn off the light of the museum room and just go out, go out and we would still be in there. And the next morning, the museum would just open up again, and we would still be in our in our own artwork, trying to survive with the supplies that we had.
0: Uh, very, very interesting. And another another project that you did that I that I would like to spend a little bit more time talking about was the high seas project, which uh, which you, you which you spent more than just a little bit of time in there. We're talking about four months here. Yes, um, yes, yes. That's right. right? That was um, um, it was a Mars, Mars simulation mission. Um, that was in Hawaii. Um, you were a crew commander, if I understand correctly, um, and you were close to the uh, Mauna Loa volcano, uh, which I guess is the closest approximation of the actual surface of Mars.
2: Yes, yes, that's true.
0: And um, your mission was to, to to study the the improving and improving the taste of and nutritional quality of the meals consumed. During this, the the space flight, or should I say, the interstellar flight? Um, I mean, what what is the experience that you got out of out of the being four months in, in basically an isolated area, um, pretty much living like I guess a human being would live would live on Mars?
2: Well, I need to, to make a, f- a few little corrections here because um, the high high seas H- 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 is actually um, is actually a research program. Uh, currently the third mission is rolling. Uh, so there are several missions that have, have been planned. I was the crew commander indeed of the very first mission. Uh, and every mission has a slightly different focus. And, uh, our focus was indeed, uh, food and nutrition. Um, but high seas is a planetary surface analog, which means that we're practicing living on the surface of Mars or the moon. We're not practicing living inside a spaceship and we're not practicing going to Mars. We're really practicing the life once you've arrived somewhere like Mars, um, which is a little different uh, because the architecture you're living in is, is quite different. You're li- really living in a base. We uh, our, our base consisted mostly of a, a big dome. Well, it wasn't that big. It was only, ele- <laughs> it was only ele- 11 meters <laughs> diameter for six people, including everything like kitchen and toilet and uh, individual tiny bedrooms and everything. Um, so... Um, it's, it's, of course, I often get this question when I start talking about it or when people figure out that I've I've been doing a mission for NASA, like, so how was it? Um, and I have no idea how to respond to that question. How was it? (laughs) I'm like, it was great, I guess. Um, it's, I mean, it's obviously life, life changing. I mean, this is, this is something that definitely teaches you a lot about people, I guess, mostly, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about the the science of space exploration, and I'm including what I learned into my current research, into my current PhD. Um, But apart from the science, I think I learned most about leadership. For me personally, Uh, it's not that I consider myself the perfect leader, but I was in that position of of trying to lead that group. And of course, it's uh, you're dealing with highly autonomous, very competent, very intelligent people. And you don't not treat them like a bunch of soldiers that you can just, you know, you shout some orders and they'll do whatever you say. It's a very different ballgame. It's a very different way of dealing with a team like this. And that was, that was very interesting. And, uh, at a certain point, I actually decided with a bit of a small social engineering experiment, I decided to give away my uh, position to the crew. I woke up one morning with this idea and, uh, during breakfast, I announced it. I was like, listen, I have this proposal. Is anybody interested to become the commander of this mission? And I could see that like four out of my five fellow crew members raised their hand and were like, I want to be the commander of this thing. And then week after week, uh, other people took over commands. And basically, I took a step back and just observed what happened and how they dealt with issues and everything. This, this was incredibly uh, an incredible learning uh, curve. Uh, I really. Uh, yeah, it's one of the biggest things that I took away from that.
1: But how? Do, like, if it's four months, right? Okay, I don't know how to uh-huh. ask this. Wh- when exactly did it get weird? Like,
2: <laughs> like
1: because four months is a long time.
2: No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't really get weird. The honeymoon ends. That's what. Happens. Well, okay,
1: okay, that's a better way of putting it. When did the honeymoon end? Yeah,
2: I think it was about. If, if I go through my notes, it's about. I guess three weeks, three, four weeks in, I would have to go back to my data, but I think it's about three, four weeks in that people are like, okay, now in the beginning, everybody is doing, uh, is doing, is trying their best, is trying hard to be as nice as possible and as, as understanding as possible and everything. And then after about a month, you know each other so well and you don't have to hide all the little details anymore of your personality. And then you, you become, it becomes a little different. It's not like after a month, you start fighting because honestly, we actually had little conflict, was quite happy about it. Uh, it depends very much from group to group. Of course, it's quite it's a little unpredictable, but one of the most crucial things when you run an experiment like this, and this is basically the, the role of the mission organizers is to make sure that the crew is com- psychologically compatible. And some people are like, what's that? How do you measure that? It's not that difficult. You put Everybody knows that. You put a few people together that don't know each other and they have to do some common tasks and you immediately see who clicks together and who supports and the person that is annoying everybody else and the person who's always standing in the corner. You can see those dynamics like straight away. Uh, and that's what they did with us. You know, We were selected. We were with nine people, the finalists. And we knew that six of us were going to make it for the mission and three were going to be backup crew. Uh, and they pu- they put us through a training program in uh, in in, uh, in Cornell University, and then based on our interactions and that training program, they selected the final six. And we were pretty well compatible. I mean, we were different, uh, different personalities, but it's also very nice. I really enjoyed the differences. There were a few, there were a
0: few extroverts, there were introverts, there were three men, three women, and, and different. I'm sorry, different nationalities too. Correct, Angelo. Yes, there were you
2: know, on all kinds of levels, you know, different cultural backgrounds, Russian American, African American, Puerto Rican, European, Canadian. Um, but we all shared a Western background, of course, and that makes it easier uh, to, to, to connect. And, uh, but the, diff- the differences are really crucial. Um, it keeps things exciting. And also for troubleshooting, it's, it's, it's fantastic to have these different approaches.
1: But you can actually extrapolate from, like, when you were all at Cornell, right? you can like, cause I don't, I can imagine you saying like, okay, these six people are compatible, but when it goes on for four months, right? I mean,
2: of course, of course you have moments, you have moments when it's, you know, when there's always moments when, when somebody is like having a hard time or needs some time off or wants to, to have some more private time or when somebody is like, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I'm kind of done with this, you know, I wouldn't mind if this would stop. Now everybody has those moments. Of course it's not, you know, and we, we did have our, our discussions, Um, so that definitely happens, but, um, what you can also have is that, uh, if you're not compatible, it's going to explode like in one week, you know, the first week it's already going to happen. That's, that's just clear. Um, I basically have seen this in my art project in Seeker where a crew that was not selected because it's in in, in the Seeker project, I allow everybody to, to do whatever they want. And so the crew is self-selecting and sometimes it happens that a crew like that is not really compatible because no outsider decided who gets to go and i've seen things going wrong in like literally one hour <laughs> <laughs> they just couldn't get along so you know it's uh, yeah it's uh, it's a tricky it's a tricky game but it's it's the compatibility of personalities is definitely crucial um but the, one of the good things was that we um i think if i look back at it because i'm getting i'm getting i'm getting more and more of a distance to the whole experience and I think, first of all, having a level of privacy is of course crucial. Um, we had our personal small bedroom, uh, and that, that's your that's your private sanctuary. You know, you, you can withdraw there at certain moments, especially in the evening or in the weekends. You know, uh, and the other one is is my trick as a commander was really to keep all communication channels open all the time. We did a lot of talking and that was because I'm a talker and I'm a people person and I think talking is important. So every day we had a lot of conversation and that's, I think, how we were constantly tuning. Uh, but other people have different styles, you know, it's, it depends on, on personalities, on the personality of the leader. Uh, how a mission is shaped. That's definitely important.
1: Uh, Like during that time, did you actually sort of, this is stupid, but like forget that you were on Earth? Like That's a weird (laughs) question.
2: That's really, that's the make, that's the make-believe. And uh, it's an interesting thing because I'm currently writing a a scientific paper on the coping strategies of my crew during the mission. And uh, the make-believe is really, has an important part because it's on one hand, um, it's really motivating to to feel on Mars and to 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 um to play that role to play that script that's even a better word. On the other hand, it's really hard to attain that level where you really are in the middle of a story on Mars because there are basically so many things that are constantly reminding you the fact of the fact that you're still on Earth. We had one small porthole window and of course the clouds and the blue sky immediately destroy anything that could you know remind you of mars you're constantly okay blue sky clouds okay that's not mars um, the few moments when i really and most of my crew agreed with that when we felt um, on mars was when we were visiting um Lava tubes. We couldn't really go deep inside the lava tubes. We could only go. We didn't have permits for that, but we could go in, into the entrance. And then basically, a lot of the views were blocked off. And you're in the middle of these um, of this geological structure that also actually probably is also present on Mars. Red geological structure. No sky. In a in a suit, in a spacesuit, a mock-up spacesuit, having radio contact with your fellow crew members. And then we started feeling something that could look like being on Mars.
0: Now, now, I was just going to uh, mention this, or, or ask this, um, and, and you just said it, that you were wearing spacesuits every time you walk outside. Uh, were, were those spacesuits actually, spacesuits um, similar to the ones that, that humans would be wearing in, in Mars? No, no, they would
2: no, be no. I, I mean, a spacesuit is $1 million, so there is no way you can even approach a $1 million suit. So the suits that we were wearing were, um, were really strictly, uh, were very functional in a way and the two main functions they had was first uh, to shut us off of outside air so you don't have any idea or feeling about temperature and air uh, at all and the second one is to inhibit or to to make your movements uh, more difficult so it becomes more clumsy to 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 work with uh, with gear and with with, with all kinds of uh, technology um and once you get those two functions that's that's fine it can look like something that doesn't that looks like Entirely different than a typical spacesuit. It doesn't really matter. Uh, so in this way, these are very s- kind of simple uh, mock-ups of real spacesuits.
1: You said that you were part of the first mission, which uh, like improving the taste and nutrition quality of the meals, right? You were. So, what What does that mean,
2: like? Well, the the, the study that we were uh, were doing was basically dealing with an issue uh, and. and it's very typical for long-term space exploration, which is called menu fatigue. People getting tired of their food. It's a it's a psychological phenomenon. You, go, you also find it back in the military. Uh, people start believing they're not hungry anymore or they're less hungry, while well, actually physically they should need they need the food, but they're so sick and tired of eating the same food that they believe they don't need it anymore. They lose weight, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's not good. You don't want skinny astronauts arriving. <laughs> so. One solution would be to allow astronauts to cook their food, uh, to make their own meals, because creating your personal meal is of course motivating to to actually eat eat the meal, and that, that that's what we experimented with. So we had a whole pantry of freeze dry of um, shelf stable ingredients. These are ingredients that you can keep over a very long time without cooling. Um, and so the 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 system was like this: that we would have two days of astronaut food. Or astronauts like food, you know, something that was similar to astronauts' food, and two days of cooking, and that would go on through the whole throughout the whole mission. And every single portion that we put on our plate, we would have to weigh it, we would have to film it, evaluate it before we ate it, and then evaluate it after we ate it. So that's a lot of data that we gathered, and so our um, uh, our mission organizers were basically studying the evolution of our food pattern over time what kind of food we would finally settle in with and what we liked and we didn't like and um, so that was that was basically the study and honestly I didn't I don't have the data myself because typically what is like in, in, in what is typical for space exploration is that when you're an astronaut you um, you're an operator you run an experiment but you don't analyze the data yourself so I'm not analyzing those data but I do have my personal observations of course and as you can expect, the meals that we cooked ourselves, even though these were shelf stable ingredients, were way more popular than the, than, the, than the ready meals that we were eating, obviously. And there are a lot of interesting social and psychological benefits to to the cooking. Uh, uh, first and foremost, when you're, we were always cooking with two. and uh, so being with two in the kitchen, immediately you know when people are, are making a meal together, they start talking and sharing things. This is very crucial. Like I said before, I believe that communication, keeping the communication lines open is very important when you lock people up. So that was really good. But also it's an outlet for creativity, and that's really something you start missing because everything is pretty similar every single day. So making something new, something novel that hasn't been there before is really very gratifying. So even cooking a completely new invented meal is is very gratifying. And then uh, finally serving it to the crew, And sharing it and getting feedback on the meal is also really interesting from a social perspective. And it really generates discussion, appreciation or critical uh, comments, but it, it, you know, it generates dialogue. So it's interesting on all these different levels. But then the big disadvantage is time. It takes time to cook a ready meal. Like, you know, it's just you add some water, you heat it up in a microwave and it's done. And so my guess is that for the future, Cooking will probably be part of, of future space exploration, especially when people are living on a, on a planetary surface, but it will be balanced with, with uh, ready meals and the traditional astronaut food, because sometimes you, you don't want to cook. You just want to work. You've got a lot of work to do.
0: Well, uh, I, I don't know if I could adjust to that. Uh, Andrzej, could you live like this for four months?
2: Well, uh, yeah, it's,
1: uh, we're both tall. We should say that. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, we're both. Ah, okay.
1: Yeah yeah but I think when once I think once you're over like two meters like we are uh yeah meters, we're both yeah. Uh, I guess what we're gonna say four, something like that yeah 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 we're <laughs> not built for the stuff like that like <laughs> See, yeah, yeah four months mean. in a dome I don't know you know it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, sounds
2: awful honestly like yeah
0: uh, okay okay yeah what was your communication with the outside world um did you actually live there? as if you were in mars which means probably uh, that communication was slow and there was some some lag when you were sending messages back and forth to the to the let's say outside world during our mission the
2: actual um, communication system that nasa was, was putting in place was was still under development so the first part of our mission uh, we actually still had internet access we did not have any real time communication no uh, no as a messaging or phone calls or skype calls or anything like that um, but then after some time, uh, our email got delayed, uh, 20 minutes one way. So it took 40 minutes for a message to go back and forth or to get a response to your message. And email got, and um, internet got blocked except for a few, uh, necessary sites. So by the end of the mission, everything was pretty much like it would be on Mars.
1: But, but like, like really, you could actually, oh, this is, uh, like if you can <laughs> send an email, right, like, like how, how like how much data can you actually send to Mars?
2: Oh, it's uh, it's it's not too. I mean, it's not too bad. I mean, you, it depends. Do you want to send a high a high resolution video? Well, file? yeah, of okay. It's going to take a lot of bandwidth. But for, but for but an email, really, that's how many characters is that? That's not. I mean, with contemporary technology, that's not so much bandwidth. That's that's perfectly feasible. Right.
1: and it's uh, you said twenty minutes each way, right? So it's forty minutes. Twenty minutes
2: each way. Yes, I mean, I mean, the 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 Mars rovers are sending high definition photos from the surface of Mars, and it's not like a, a huge problem. So you know.
1: Yeah, that is true. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, there's rovers on Mars that still blows my mind.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, but, okay, fair enough.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Angelo, would you do that mission again? Would you sacrifice four more months to do another uh, Mars simulation mission?
2: Yes. Of course, you know, of course, and um, um, honestly, I'm looking around for more more opportunities to do similar stuff. But I wouldn't do the exact same mission because you know I need some. Uh, I also need some novelty. <laughs> uh, but if it would be a, if it would be a different a different system, a different base, um, a different research uh, strategy or topic, I would definitely be interested to continue this kind of uh, this kind of work. For sure, and like I said, I'm running my own mini missions in in uh, in Seeker, so you know, I'm, in a way, I'm still I'm still doing it, but of course, much shorter. Although we're making plans to make the missions in Seeker longer than just a few days.
0: You could probably be the uh, the first person that I could uh, ask directly a question that I always uh, wonder, and uh, and Ajay knows this. Um, you know how how far is the human race Act to actually going to mars i mean we hear so many things about different private companies you know such as spacex or mars one uh and so on and so on which are which are trying to uh, basically send a human being to mars um but since you probably know a lot of scientists a lot of people in that field of um, exploration uh, of uh, exploring the space um what would what be your answer how, how close are we
2: well, the the dream of going to Mars has consistently been thirty years ahead. Um, in the in the in the seventies, they thought we were going to go to Mars in two thousand. In two thousand, they thought it was going to be two thousand thirty. Um, now they're they're squeezing it a little more two thousand twenty something. Sometimes you hear. Uh, honestly, um, it's a very political thing. I mean, technically, we could go to Mars. I'm, I'm you know we could. We still have to develop new technologies, but we could we could pull it off. Um, but the country that probably has the most uh, the most uh, how to put it R and D on, on in the field of go- you know to go to yeah. Mars is probably probably America, probably NASA. But they're so depending on Congress, so you know the budget is just fluctuating so much. It's very hard. The thing is, there is no Apollo program for Mars, that's a big difference. So there is a lot of research being done at NASA to go to Mars, but it's all individual research programs, like the one I was part of, was also funded by NASA, but it wasn't directly connected to other research programs to, to to develop other technologies to go to Mars. So it's all kind of a little bit separate. But if you know, if if they if they if they would get the go ahead and a proper budget, they could pull it off relatively soon. So it's a little hard to say because it depends so much on the politics. But then there's, of course, all those private companies that you just brought up, like Indeed, SpaceX. I think Elon Musk just recently brought it up again that he wants to set up a city on Mars for thousands of people. Uh, there is Mars One. Um, and then there is Inspiration Mars. I think those are the three ones that you, you see in the news the most most often. Inspiration Mars is probably the most realistic one because they want to set up a flyby mission. So they don't want to land on Mars. They just want to send a couple and a flyby to Mars and back. And I think that, to me, seems the most realistic one. The the date they always kept in mind was like leaving in 2018. I would be a little surprised they would leave in 2018 because that seems a little soon. But, you know, a few years later, I I guess it, it, it could be feasible depending on the launch window because you can't just go to Mars whenever
0: you want. You need to wait until the perfect alignment of the planets um, and and most probably means that once you're once you're going to Mars, you stay in there, right?
2: With a flyby, you don't stay. You don't yeah,
0: yeah. I don't. I don't mean the the flyby, but the actual landing there. Um, you know, missions such as such as uh, Mars One. Well,
2: that's the Mars One. That's the Mars One project. Of course, it's about the thing. It's it's a ridiculous project. I, I don't believe it one single thing of it. Um, I mean, they might pull off their mission, but in like like thirty years, and not like that. The thing is. The time, uh, the planning they put forward is complete. They're already, they already admitted that the original plan they had is completely impossible, and they pushed things already with several years. And I think they they're going to keep on pushing things because it's totally unrealistic how quickly they wanted to solve all the problems. And one of the things they're always saying at Mars One is like, you know, all the technology is available. It's just about putting all the technology together and just go. And that's just totally not true. There is no Mars base at this point. Nobody has a proper design for a, a fully functional and fully safe Mars, uh, Mars living quarters. It's, it has to be developed. Um, there is at this point no system to land humans on Mars yet that properly has been tested. It's not available. None of those technologies is properly available. There are bits and pieces and ideas. So, and that takes time. And if you really squeeze things, you run the risk of having accidents. And I would be so unhappy if they would cause the first, you know, commercial space. I mean, we had a commercial space accident actually quite recently with Virgin Galactic. Uh, but if they, if they would, if, if Mars one would screw up and in go into Mars, that would be really bad for a commercial space flight. So personally, I'm like, you know, don't, don't rush it so badly. You know, you're, you might end up in trouble, but. It's all about a TV show.
0: (laughs) Yeah, because they're trying to actually make a TV show out of it, like a reality show, right?
2: Yeah, that's the thing. And you can't promise a reality show for like 20 or 30 years because then people will be like, we're still waiting for that show. (laughs) And that's the problem there. And also, what kind of people are you going to select? Are you going to select people that are really qualified to go to Mars? They're probably not the most exciting people. I mean, if you look at, a, um, if, I mean, from a from they're they they're scientists and engineers. I mean, they are really into their work. Um, if you look at the profile of people and the uh, remember, I just talked about crew compatibility, about psychological compatibility. You don't want psychological compatibility for a reality show. It's the golden rule. Yeah, You know, look at Big Brother. You, you want the total audience, of, of, of course. Of course, people are chosen because they are bound to fight because that makes interesting TV. So are, how are you going to combine that, you know? So there's all... And that whole program is just... I really have a lot of issues with that. One thing that is positive about it is that they make the dream of going to Mars much more tangible for a huge audience, which is quite good. So which leaves me with SpaceX. And honestly, SpaceX... Is ta- I mean, Elon Musk is talking a lot about uh, going to Mars, but they actually don't develop technology to go to Mars. I mean, all of their technology is focused on low Earth orbit. It's all about the satellite market and getting astronauts to the space station. And that's where they want to make money. And then maybe in the long term, they can use some of that money to set up a program to go to Mars. But they're actually right now not working on Mars. It's more like a big Conceptual framework they used to—it's—it's it's a bit of marketing as, as much as a.
1: Yeah, Elon Musk likes likes to do that with the whole.
2: Yes, he's very good at it. He's very good <laughs> at it. But once again, once again, it—I I like it. I mean, it—you know—going to Mars is is part of our reality now, uh, much more than ever before. And I, I think that's that's definitely a very interesting, a very interesting thing. So honestly, I can't answer your question. I can, I can, I can comment on all those programs, you know, on the on the situation at NASA, which is not the situation which you had in the 50s and 60s, where you had an Apollo program um, and very dependent on a on a very unstable Congress, basically, um, and then all these other commercial programs. I can give feedback on every single pro- program, but you know, I can't put years on it. I have no idea.
0: Yeah, because. Uh you know, when when in our podcast, uh, when me and, me and Andrzej always talk about uh, uh, space exploration or something like that, and I always bring up the, the dates, the numbers, uh, the years when, when it's going to happen, Andrzej always laughs about it. Yeah,
1: because the it, the numbers are nonsense, like most of the time.
0: Yeah, it's it's
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's it's mostly politics. Right? Yeah. Um, there's so many issues that still need to be resolved. I think the main one of the main issues of going to Mars is definitely radiation. Uh, apart from all the psychological aspects that are not going to be easy, I, th- I think it's probably going to be uh, radiation issues. I mean, a solar flare could just kill, could wipe out your crew, uh, and just uh, just uh, the regular radiation that's absor- present there is also a, a huge hazard. Did you know that for um, Mars Inspiration, they want to shield their start their spaceship with the um, the toilet waste? Really, I didn't know that. <laughs> It's going to be a bit of a shitty spacecraft. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's, that's actually because uh, exc- human excrement or any excrement is actually a really good shield for, uh, for radiation. And so they want to use it. They want to use a toilet waste to build up uh, a shield. And so uh, to protect themselves, which is kind of weird
1: that is the not that's not kind of weird that's the weirdest thing <laughs> 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 but
2: at the same time it's um, this is this is sustainability this is hardcore sustainability you know you don't throw anything out
0: that's 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 really a very interesting for me i didn't i had no idea about that that's <laughs> that's, yeah, that's. i mean that that used
2: to be the design of the of the spacecraft they wanted to use for inspiration Inspiration Mars, but um, I would have to look it up again. I don't know if, if any changes have been made. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what about the the thing that we hear about terra terraforming the planet? Um, you know how. Realistic is that you know. There's a lot of talk about it, but uh, I imagine that that's just not something that uh, it's, it's easy to do. I think it would take a lot of time and effort and technology to actually get to terraforming a planet. No, no, but
2: terraforming is, is science fiction. Terraforming is not reality. It's uh, it's, it's 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 complete. Uh, it's it's a nice concept for for science fiction novels. Uh, yeah, and uh, Star Trek. It's, it's like <laughs> yeah, Star Trek. It's, it's 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 like geoengineering. Yeah, yeah. Controlling, I mean, first of all, you have a challenge to create, to create an atmosphere like Earth. I mean, that would take such a long time, would technically be so complicated. But then also to keep controlling an entire atmosphere, like that the composition would just be very balanced. And it wouldn't, it, it, I mean, how on earth would you, would you do that? That even geoengineering is something that I, I'm totally not, I'm totally against. Um, you have no idea if you change a major thing here what might happen on the other side of the planet. It's just too tricky to start playing with that. So creating and then cont- find, controlling in a very regulated way uh, an entire atmosphere at this point, maybe in a few thousand years we can do that. Who knows? But right now, I think it's complete sci-fi. I mean, if we're going to colonize places like Mars, it's going to be with uh, with architecture, you know, and then people are going to live inside structures where you will have an artificial atmosphere, just like in a spaceship.
1: So, total recall, basically. Yeah, total
2: recall. (laughs) Well, at the the end, they…
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, the the whole uh, releasing of the oxygen. That's true, yeah.
2: (laughs) Which is like, in a few seconds, they provide an entire planet with oxygen. (laughs) That's, that's <laughs> but, Mathematically, it's something is wrong there. It's just impossible. Uh,
1: you're saying the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie has some some like crappy plot points. I, I <laughs> that's surprising, basically. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay, I do have one more sci-fi question because I think like y- you might just answer that uh, favorite Star Trek uh, series. I'm just going to ask.
2: My favorite Star, Star Trek series.
1: Because I'm betting you have an answer. You have an opinion on that. Because you do Starship design. There's-
2: no, no. Yes, yes. But I'm, I'm, I haven't seen all of Star oh, Trek st- yet. I'm not such a big Star Trek or Star Wars fan. To the oh, day. okay. Um, and I actually was very charmed by the reboot of Star Trek. By J. Yeah, J. same I- here. I bad at all. Yeah. 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 I, I, I kind of, I, for me, it was, I, was, I was really uh, very, uh, yeah very much into that. And the sci-fi series that I've I've followed a few years ago very intensively was Battlestar Galactica.
1: Oh, awesome. (laughs) Yeah. I, I
2: kind of feel much more connected to that awesome uh, more than, than i mean star wars has been such a disaster <laughs> okay um, we're not going to go I don't even want to talk about <laughs> yeah. it i mean of course now jj abrams has bringing and you know making the new star wars movies so who knows what yeah. what happens but it's
1: yeah let's not let's not mention the phantom menace that's not yeah
2: no 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 no, no
0: we didn't we didn't talk about this and uh okay but uh, since we're talking about movies uh, i'm wondering if you saw interstellar and what did you think about it?
2: Yes, I saw Interstellar. Indeed, it's. I think it's a medio a medium movie. It's. It's. Uh, it tries really hard to be this this masterpiece, but in trying so hard to be a masterpiece, I think it, it kind of fails. It's a good sci fi movie, but that's about it. Um, there are a few things that I, I I didn't like too much. I mean, the the overtly emotional undertone of the the daughter father thing sometimes got a little bit on my nerves. <laughs> um, yeah, and then. Um, the whole, I mean, the whole concept of traveling through, through time using, um, using space time warping is, of course, very interesting and is, is very, is kind of correct. But, um, yeah, there are a, a few major, major issues. I mean, the first one, um, flying so close to these black holes is like, you know, it's just completely, completely impossible for so many reasons. So that, that's kind of a turn, turns me off. Um, and then also, ironically, at the end, when uh, the main character is in this geometric structure uh, of time and space, it's interesting how, you know, they try to represent uh, uh, time and space as a, a data set, basically. And you can just walk back and forth in this data set. But then the individual data within this huge data set are very traditional linear stories. You know, it's a regular video you see in front of you. So, of course, this is where everything just can't be represented anymore. You know, you're you're trying to cut up time and space, and in the end you have little chunks of regular regular moments of life, which actually would be impossible. So it's a poetic representation. It was quite well done, um, but sometimes a little far-fetched. So I, I liked it, but, you know, it, it, I didn't have this feeling like, oh, my God, this is like it, it almost felt sometimes like it so badly wanted to be uh, 2001 a space odyssey well, you know it wants to be this new the new one uh, for this era and i don't think it succeeded in that but it's still a nice movie
0: yeah i don't know i, I kind of liked in- interstellar i i was really excited to see how they're going to portray uh, the whole interstellar stellar travel you know how the spaceship is going to look like how they're going to go through the wormholes you know visit different galaxies different planets and so on and so on and uh it kind of reminded me a little bit of a movie that I saw maybe ten, fifteen years ago uh, called Contact, uh-huh. yes. which uh, which I really liked. Um, Angé, you saw Interstellar, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, I saw it. Well, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Chris Nolan fan, so yeah, yeah. But like, yeah, well, it's a good sci-fi movie, but it like it has really high highs and then some pretty low lows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, of course.
2: yeah, one of the one of the one of the sci-fi movies from the last decade or so that was probably one of my favorite ones was uh, sunshine oh
1: sunshine is awesome Danny Boyle yes
2: I really like yeah I really like some people complain because at the end it becomes a bit, a bit more of an action movie it never really bothered me that much I actually think, but same I, here I I, I, I was perfect but those I, I saw it like twice in the cinema and just those images of the Sun and then the conversations of the crew and and this the crew gets like dysfunctional and then it, the whole the art, the art design, and everything—I I really, um, yeah, really love that movie a lot. Oh
1: yeah, okay. I com- i completely agree. Yeah.
2: And I, I felt more compelled by that movie than by uh, Interstellar. Same thing with Gravity. Yeah. Uh, Gravity is a Gravity is a shitty movie. <laughs> uh, It's—I always say that it's a, its a texture artist movie. Did you see how many texture artists they worked on the, worked on this movie? If you look in the, at the credits, it's amazing. It's a whole group of texture <laughs> artists. That's, those are the artists. It's their movie, and it's beautifully done. I, I've seen it in three D on a big ass screen, and uh, of course it looked gorgeous. But come on, the acting and then the, the dialogues. Oh my god, and the script it's so bad.
1: Yeah, but not as bad as Avatar. So you know. <laughs>
2: yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the, yeah, and then the moments at the end when our hero she she stands up and then she walks. Uh, out I'm know, short. Yeah, just like all this very typical Hollywood. Typical. Uh, typical. Nothing. I've nothing against Hollywood, honestly, because I think Hollywood produces fantastic movies, but sometimes they use uh, they use certain cliches a little too much, and then you're you know, you know what's going to happen next, and that's kind of uh, disappointing.
0: Angelo, what are your plans for the uh, for the future? I mean, what are you doing? What are you doing now? Currently, and and where do you wanna, where do you wanna be? Where do you see yourself in in let's say five to ten years?
2: Um, well, like I said, I'm now starting my fourth year of my PhD I'm on on Starship uh, development at Delft University of Technology in Holland, and uh, you know I'm starting to prepare manuscripts, and I'm gonna wrap up some some computer modeling, and I'm hoping you know, the idea is that in 2016 I'm wrapping up that PhD. Um, and then I want to continue finding my way in the world of space exploration. So that's definitely part of my academic and amb- ambitions. But um, there's a whole group of people that I'm working with. All the stories that I've told you about Seeker and Biomon uh, are community projects. They're community driven. They're done with lots of people. Uh, we built these systems with groups of people. That's my 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 interest. That's how I became a commander, by the way, because of my experience uh, working with communities. And uh, with my closest allies, uh, we've decided we wanted to we want to scale up, and we want to turn our movements into a more bigger, um, a bigger movement. So far, things like Biomod and Seeker were always one-off projects in a different location, and then there, and then there. And uh, we basically would prefer to turn it into a worldwide movement where people would, just like an open source uh, movement, would build their own Biomod versions and their own Seekers, and it would be spread. Uh, through a much wider audience, so that's that's the the, the art side, mm-hmm. um, and that's really what I'm hoping to uh, to keep combining. You know, on one hand, being a um, an artist working with an open source philosophy, and on the other hand, being able to feed myself and my curiosity through uh, academic collaborations.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's great. Um, can you maybe tell the people who, who are listening, who who would like to get involved in one of your projects and who are interested? Um you know how to do that how and where can they uh, get involved and, and get in touch with you I think the best way to
2: start is to um, to use one of the social social media I'm both with my regular name Angelo Verneuren. Uh I'm on Instagram on Twitter and on Facebook uh, you can find me there you know just drop me a message or post something on, on my wall and I'll get back to you
0: perfect uh, Angelo Thank you so much for taking your time and talking to us. Uh, you know, we've been going back and forth through the emails for, for a couple of months yes. to finally uh, find dates that fit for this conversation. I'm really thankful. Yeah, thank you. Uh, that, that, we, that you did that um, with us. Uh, you know, we, we heard a lot of interesting things and, and, uh, and learned a lot of interesting things. So, uh, you know, thanks again and, and really best of luck in all of your, your projects.
2: Thank you so much. It was a fun conversation. And you know what? Maybe in a few years' time we can have this conversation again and we can see where we all are. <laughs> and I'm
1: going to make Boki watch Better Star Galactica.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, Angela, if you ever uh, travel back to Slovenia uh, and, and we're there, uh, you know, we'd love to sit down with you. Uh, again and uh and um you know have a conversation yes, uh, behind the, the same table not not via skype and and maybe see how your projects are are moving forward and uh, uh it'll be fun so you know thanks again thank you man. okay bye guys uh this was the fifth episode of the details podcast uh all of you who are um sharing information or you know uh, anything about a podcast to your friends to your uh, family you know social media and so on we we are very thankful for that uh, Ajay, where can where can people listen to our podcast uh and, and where can they find more information
1: uh, yeah, the site is the detailspodcast dot com and uh, the show is also on on iTunes and uh, thank you for any reviews you might leave there
0: yeah yeah we'll we'll, we'll definitely appreciate it a lot and uh, uh, we will be back next month uh, with uh, with another interesting guest. Yeah. And uh, I think that I think that's it. Anything else we forgot, Ange?
1: Oh uh, yeah, we're both on Twitter.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: Where Where are Where are you on Twitter? Like at what? Boki what are At
0: Bokinardbar. At and, Boki
1: and you say my Twitter handle,
0: my English No, handle. I don't want to say. You yeah.
1: say it. <laughs> <laughs> it's I, at, at an atomic XX. Anyway, that was pretty much it. I'm gonna say bye now. Bye, Bokin. Bye.
0: Two X's. Two yeah, X's. Two yeah, two X's. <laughs> All right. Thank Thanks for listening, and then, uh, you know we'll be back soon. Thanks. Bye. Bye.